0: Hello, Maine and greater New England. Hello. We're coming to see you guys in Portland, and we can't wait. We would love to see you there. Yep. We'll be at the State Theater on August 30th, and if
1: you're interested, you can get tickets and information at sysklive.com.
0: Throw some lobster at us. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. And uh, Wowie's Owie.
0: Pavement's best record?
1: I think, um, no, no, hold on. No, it's not Wowie's Owie. It's it's not Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. Crooked Rain. It's the one between
0: them with Summer Babe. Oh, no, that was the first one. That's uh, Slanted and Enchanted.
1: Okay. That was their first album? hmm God, what a classic, man. Yeah. I think that's their best one, is it not?
0: Well, Crooked Rain gets cited a lot of times as sort of the peak pavement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slanted is for fans of, like, the early sloppy days, lo-fi, which we both love. Sure. Uh, I like Wowie Zowie because it was so strange and weird. I haven't heard that one very much. It's great. Okay. They're, they're all great. I like them even right down to the last one.
1: That's good. The the weird um, polka experimental album that they came out with.
0: (laughs) They're playing. uh, They announced they're playing uh, another couple of reunion shows at a festival in Portugal. Wow. And I, you know, uh, we're in touch with Mr. Bob Nastanovich, and I texted him. Yeah. And it's like, do I have to go to Portugal? Is anything brewing here in the states? Uh It's like, because I'll go. What did he say? He said "Uh, nothing as of yet. He's like, so go with God. Are you going to go to Portugal? Maybe. If that's the only chance to see Fabin again, yeah, I Yeah, sure. Because I want to go to Portugal you anyway. Got,
1: you have frequent flyer miles to use? A ton. Do it. You totally should. <laughs> and drink some port while you're there, too.
0: Yeah, you know, my friend's opening up a wine shop in Kirkwood that is uh, very, not exclusively Portuguese, but that's where she's from. Oh, cool. It's going to be featuring a lot of Portuguese wines.
1: That works really well with this episode, Chuck. Great. As we'll see later on. But just put a pin in Portuguese wine,
0: okay, and for later. All right. So you started off by saying the words "wowie zowie"
1: because we're talking about peyote, which mm-hmm. is an hallucinogen. That's right. But um, it's a it's from what I've seen, one of the oldest hallucinogens. People were eating mushrooms all over Europe, North Central Western Europe, for a very mm-hmm. long
0: time. Sometimes accidentally, which is hysterical.
1: But people have been eating peyote for a really, really long time, too, as we'll see. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, it's got a pretty interesting little history to it, both ancient and modern. Yeah. And really, all it comes down to is it's a spineless cactus that has a very bitter taste. Hey, that's not nice. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> that um, it never spineless stands up cactus. for itself. Um, but it is a spineless cactus, uh-huh. which means, well, if it's a spineless cactus, that means that desert animals probably love to eat it. They don't because it has a really bitter taste, and that bitter taste is an alkaloid called mescaline.
0: Right, and that it's a sign. It's nature's sign saying, don't eat me.
1: Right. It just so happens that if we humans eat that particular alkaloid, we say things like,
0: wowie-zowie. That's right. Right. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, let's go. It is native <laughs> to Mexico, uh, in the southern U.S. It is uh, technically, the, the scientific name is Lophophora. Nice. William C.E. Now, we decided that two eyes means you pronounce both, right? You have to go E.E. E.E. Uh, and it grows in northern Mexico and south Texas, right along the border there. Sure. Peyote and, knows no borders. <laughs> that's true. And it loves the, the rocky limestone. And in historical documents, it's... Uh, had a range all the way up to New Mexico, perhaps. Yeah. And we've either changed that with human uh, interaction or that was just wrong.
1: Right. But it definitely grows along the border.
0: Yeah, and it looks like a little... uh, Growing up, did you ever see those little tomato pin cushions? Yeah, oh, yeah. Looks sort of like that, but it's not red. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) And it doesn't have a pin sticking out of it. No, although you could stick a pin in it. Sure
1: you could. Put a bird on it. It'd be very disrespectful to the spirit within the peyote, though.
0: That's right. It probably wouldn't like that very much. That's true, like a little peyote uh, voodoo doll.
1: Sure. Um, So like we said, the mescaline is is to tell animals, stay away, don't eat me. Um, They also think it's possible that it has something to do with communications between plants. It may do a number of different things, actually. But one of the things about peyote is it has this reputation, a very mystical reputation, not just because it's a psychedelic and a hallucinogen, Mm -hmm. but because it is really, really hard to find until it's not. It's got this reputation where you'll be looking all over for peyote. Mm -hmm. It grows in the rocky soil, and typically it'll grow under like a creosote bush or a mesquite tree or something like that.
0: Yeah, nurse
1: plant. Right. Um, But you can have looked. You can have looked. All over, underneath the creosote tree or whatever, and you walk away, and then you're like, "Ah, I'll just go back and look again. And there it is, just staring you right in the face. You trip
0: over a rock, and you land on it.
1: Right. There's the peyote. So it's got this kind of neat little uh, um, reputation for for hiding, playing hide-and-go-seek with you. And then it's like, (laughs) okay, all right, go ahead and eat me and trip. Trip. (laughs) I was going to say something else.
0: Uh, Like I said, it's not red. Um, They can be uh, brighter green, but... Uh, they can also look sort of bluish, yeah, which like is interesting.
1: That nice like steel blue green, yeah, it's a pretty color.
0: It is, um, and they grow and usually in clusters with multiple plants, but sometimes you can find them individually. And they, uh, I think they're very pretty. They have little pink, white, and yellow flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, they grow very low to the ground, and they're just uh, it looks like you know stubby, a little, yeah, a little stubby, tomatillo with. Um, Pincushion. <laughs> yeah, but it's not it's not completely round. It has like sections. It's oh yeah. It's almost it's cylindrical a little bit too. Yeah.
1: So um yeah, I see what you mean. You know what I mean? I know. We're on beauty right now, everyone. <laughs> a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Oh. Um. So w- this plant in particular has a, a weird history of getting confused with other plants because some of the other plants that go around it are also um consumed by some of the uh, indigenous tribes in the area and have been. But there's like a type of peyote plant that won't, it's not psychedelic, it just makes you kind of sleepy. Sure, There's something um, called a plant that has mescal beans um, that are intoxicants of their own type, but they can also kind of kill you. Uh, There was a (laughs) while there where uh, peyote um, was called both uh, Laphophora williamsii and Anhelonium lewinei. Right. Mm-hmm. Both have two eyes on the end. Mm-hmm. And then somebody's like, no, that's the same plant. So there's a lot of confusing horticultural history uh, associated with. I wonder why. With peyote. Am I right? It was playing tricks is what it was.
0: So there is a, uh, you know, people have used it not only for um, religious purposes, although that's a large part of it, which we'll get to in depth. Mm-hmm. But it does have some antimicrobial properties. Uh, I've seen that for in really low doses, that um, certain tribes have used it for indigestion, uh, to treat wounds, uh, to give them energy, to work on a computer for days on end, (laughs) cure hangovers, Uh, and like anything psychedelic, you could um, technically you can use it to help treat mental illness. Right, but they don't study that stuff in the United States. So again, it's always very hard to think about any sort of ecstasy or magic mushrooms or anything uh, without studying, like clinical studies.
1: Well, they and they did study it for a while. Um, mescaline, once they isolated it from peyote, was used like LSD was in the 50s until LSD came along. Right. And they used it because they thought that maybe you could glean uh, information about the root cause of schizophrenia mm-hmm. by giving mescaline to people with schizophrenia. But they found out it was too unreliable. People's experiences were too different. Yeah. um, And there was no kind of um, structure that that the individual followed. And plus, they found out people with schizophrenia could tell the difference between their delusions and delusions brought on by mescaline, which is pretty interesting. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. And when was that? In the 50s, I guess?
1: Pre-50s because LSD came along
0: in the 50s. So, 30s, 40s. Wow. Yeah. So, when you harvest peyote, um, you cut off that stem really close to the ground, and they're known as buttons. They look like, uh, I guess I've described them as pincushions, but they look like little buttons. It makes sense to call them buttons. Yeah, and Ed here, Ed wrote this article, The Grabster. He said a typical trip is four to six buttons, and I thought that seemed like a lot of peyote because I'd seen photos of some buttons that were like as large as the palm of your hand, (laughs) and I'm trying to imagine eating eight things that big eight tomatoes that large that's mm-hmm. a lot of tomatoes mm-hmm. uh, but then I looked at other pictures and I guess those were like just super big sure. peyote buttons and most of them were a couple of inches in circumference you were know? they that
1: big I thought they were more like the size of a quarter or something like
0: that I, I think between a quarter and like a silver dollar maybe or a
1: shilling for our friends in <laughs> the UK
0: is that a pence is that a quid how does that all work I
1: don't know <laughs> A shilling. Oh man, we're going to get emails about oh, this. Oh, well, that's okay. A shilling is like twenty pence, I think.
0: <laughs> are you, are you going on record? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but four to six buttons. Um, that, like you said, it's really bitter. So a lot of times, people won't want to eat it. Um, there are all different kinds of ways you can make the tea with it. And we're not giving you a how-to. Right. but um, It's as simple as that. This is how people take peyote. Sometimes they'll grind it a powder and snort it or yeah. put it into a pill. I saw that you can
1: smoke it, too, when it's dried and powdered. Oh, yeah? I've never heard of that before, but I ran across it.
0: But uh, here's the thing. If, if you're down south of the border and you're out hunting for peyote— Uh, And if this is something you want to do, more power to you, but Mm -hmm. be respectful of the plant. Don't go digging it out with a shovel by the roots because you're going to kill the plant. Yeah,
1: that's uh, extremely disrespectful to a peyote plant, especially in the tradition of like um, groups, indigenous tribes that take peyote for ritual purposes. You do not kill the plant. You don't cut off the peyote button so um, low that the roots can't regenerate. Right. And you don't dig the plant out. Yet, despite that, people do it all the time. Sure. And then that combined with feral pigs who like to eat it and trip. Do they really trip? I don't know. They definitely like to eat peyote, so probably. um, Those two combined have really kind of put a hurtin' on peyote Mm -hmm. um, and its range. So people who are, like, conscious of this stuff— say, well, you can also get mescaline out of what's called the San Pedro cactus, which grows up in the Andes, and that's not threatened or vulnerable in any Go get it there. Yeah, just go go down to (laughs) Peru. Don't stop in Mexico. Keep going south.
0: Uh, Should we take a break?
1: Let's take a break, Charles.
0: All right, let's take a break, and we're going to talk a little bit about that mescaline right after this.
1: Stuff you should know.
0: Josh and
1: Chuck. Stuff You Should Know. Mescaline. Go.
0: That is the primary psychedelic chemical, and that was synthesized, what did you say,
1: 1918 or 19? 1919 by Ernest Spoth. Ernst? Ernst. Speth. Sp- that's how you'd say it, the A with an umlaut? Yeah. So you'd go... Ernst Speth. Ernst.
0: An Austrian chemist.
1: Sorry, Ernst. I, I do like your name.
0: Who I did a little research. There's not... This is kind of the thing he did.
1: That's big enough, don't you think? Sure. The guy isolated mescaline for Pete's sake.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I'm not knocking it. I was just... Uh, I thought it was going to be like, and you know what else he did? Right. And this is kind of what he did. He's known for that. Right. Like... Uh,
1: Joseph Priestley, who is like, I discovered nitrous oxide, and I also discovered 10 other
0: things. And start on Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> yeah.
1: Have you ever seen my shirt? It's the Judas Priest logo, but it says Jason Priestley. <laughs> not. It's, pretty, it's pretty great. <laughs> is
0: his face anywhere in it, or nope. is it just a... It
1: just looks like the Judas Priest logo, <laughs> but it says Jason Priestley.
0: Nice. I got to see that. I like some of those shirts. That's a, it's one of the good ones. The one I used to hate was the... Uh... When Farfignugan was the big thing and the hippies would wear oh, the man. Please F, don't say it. F and Groovin. Yeah. <laughs> I hated those. Me too. Oi. All right.
1: So um Spith, Spith. Isolated Mescaline in 1919. The following year, the pharmaceutical company Merck is like, oh, we'll just turn this into a pharmaceutical. Of course they did. Started to get studied and released, and um things were going along fairly swimmingly for it. Um, It's a phenylethylamine, which makes it different, actually, from LSD and psilocybin, which Mm -hmm. are tryptophanes. They're in the indole family. Um, Phenylethylamine is the family that mescaline is in and MDMA is in. And it's no coincidence that MDMA and mescaline are in the same family because the chemist who created MDMA, Alexander Shulgin, he was inspired to create something like mescaline from a mescaline trip he went on. Uh, imagine being like, oh, I really like that psychedelic I just took. Let me tinker around and make my own version of it. <laughs> no. And he created MDMA as a result. It's wow. kind of an homage to mescaline. He created MDMA and 2CB. Huh. Yeah.
0: Well, um, what, what mescaline does, it binds to the serotonin receptors in your brain. And just like um, uh, LSD or magic mushrooms and stuff, it's going to cause a sense of loss of the self or ego. Mm-hmm. And ayahuasca, we did one on that too, right? Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is Ed describes a cross tolerance with other psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, if you take a bunch of mescaline, uh, it will build up a tolerance for LSD. Let's say, right. Which I, is... Yeah, I guess it hits those same receptors.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Which is, I guess, a problem if you take a ton of LSD. <laughs> but... but,
0: <laughs> I have a friend from college. I won't name him. But one of the funniest quotes uh, he has about the old days is, I've definitely forgotten I've taken acid and taken more acid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is, that's a t-shirt right there, yeah, too. that's deep. That's a 80s dead t-shirt. <laughs> it is. Um, effing grooving. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Did you um, have one? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no. No, mine said funk and groovin. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, when peyote binds to those serotonin receptors, uh-huh. some of the cells that it binds to are responsible for something called nausea. Oh, sure. And one of the hallmarks of a peyote trip is you um very typically feel nauseous and vomit for A couple of hours sometimes leading up to the trip, and it's really slow to cross the blood-brain barrier, Mm -hmm. so it takes hours to to come on. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But it also has a real slow burn, a long burn to it. Right. So compared to other trips, it's actually a very long-lasting trip, sometimes 12 hours as opposed to, say, six, eight hours for LSD or mushrooms or something. Right. Twelve hours is the trip you're going to be on on peyote. It's also, like, really well-known for being extremely visual Mm -hmm. and having some interesting, like, body feelings to it, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like, you can feel nauseous. You can feel euphoric. Mm -hmm. You can feel euphoric and nauseous. But you're going to feel it in your body as well as have a lot of, like, really trippy visuals.
0: I think—didn't they take peyote in the Doors movie? Yeah, and that's a really good— he vomited, I think, right? Yeah. Or uh, Meg Ryan did?
1: That's where the whole Lizard King thing came from, because I think they took peyote (laughs) in the desert. But it's also related to peyote in a different way, too, isn't it? The Doors.
0: Uh, Right, because Aldous Huxley wrote Doors of Perception. Mm -hmm. He was a big mescaline guy, wasn't he?
1: That book was about his first mescaline trip.
0: Right, and that's where the Doors got their name. Yeah. And then Jim Morrison went on to write a bunch of bad poetry.
1: <laughs> oh man, I thought American <laughs> Prayer was one of the coolest albums of all time.
0: I bought his poetry book. I was, you know, I was way into the doors for like everyone for right. a brief time in college sure. and I bought the book and every the poetry books and everything and D-
1: Did you ever listen to the album? Yeah, American I thought Prayer? it was all great.
0: Now though, it in my late 40s. I'm kind of like, eh, that's uh, yeah, not, that's not the not great poetry. Yeah. Although maybe it is. What do I know? I'm no poet. And you didn't even know it. So, um
1: There's one other thing about Aldous Huxley, too. He coined the term psychedelic. Oh, really? And he coined it after his first mescaline trip. Interesting. So mescaline, not even just peyote, mescaline has given the world MDMA, the doors, and the word psychedelic.
0: I'm going to have to tell Noel that because uh, Movie Crush listeners will laugh at this. Noel describes about 40% of movies as psychedelic.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'll (laughs) bet he described Mandy as psychedelic, didn't he? Oh, totally. (laughs) I mean, you could not describe it as psychedelic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, so let's talk about the history a bit. Uh, They've done some carbon dating. I read this one study uh, of these peyote buttons at an archaeological dig site. Uh, that said that use, it it suggested that use went as far back as 5,700 BCE, Mm -hmm. and that those buttons still had mescaline in them Crazy! that would work.
1: Can you imagine tripping on 7,700-year-old peyote buttons? I mean— Wouldn't that be something that you shouldn't do?
0: (laughs) Well, I wonder if that makes it uh, weaker or if it's like a fine wine, if it's like strap-in. This is 7,000-year-old <laughs> mescaline. Uh, yeah, I
1: know. Can you imagine? Like a bottle of wine from Thomas Jefferson's cellar.
0: Uh, which apparently that stuff's not very good no. to drink. No. Uh, it's just like a flashy thing that sure. super rich people want on their shelf. Yeah. yeah. So the name, though, uh, they think is derived from, uh, can you pronounce that? The Nahuatl? Nahuatl?
1: It's a, it's the southernmost group of the Aztecs.
0: Okay, but the word uh, they used was pay-a-tool, peyotl, P-E-Y-O-T-L, peyotl. Yeah. Peyotl. Payotl.
1: That's. Yeah, I think we got there.
0: And they don't know what it means, but some people think it might mean uh, the word glistening, but not everyone is on that train.
1: That's. A, you could easily lose the, the meaning of a word for glistening. Sure. You know, that's, that's a... Not a high-priority word? No. <laughs> but it's a beautiful word.
0: Uh, but that first, the first mention of Westerners encountering peyote is in this 16th century study called the Florentine Codex. And there was a Franciscan missionary uh, who <laughs> wrote it named Ber- Bernardino de Saguan- Sa- Sahagun. <laughs> and he wrote, and this is in the late 1500s, on him who eats it or drinks it, it takes effect... Like mushrooms. You know what I mean? Also, also he sees many things which frighten one or make one laugh. There you have it. Pretty
1: straightforward stuff. Yeah, for sure. But it definitely goes to show, like, yeah, people have been eating mushrooms in Europe for a very long time. Yeah. Um, So over time from like the 16th century onward in North America, um, people would come in contact with tribes that had like peyote rituals and they would try peyote themselves and they'd be like, this is crazy or this is great or I puked my brains out. This is awful. Um, And so all these stories kind of started to come out. Um, And then over time – Peyote use really diminished. It used to be very widespread, uh, not just where it grew, but even beyond its range. Like um, indigenous tribes in the area used to trade. So people who took peyote ritually, um, even after Colombian contact, was pretty extensive. But then once, like, the missionaries took hold and right. European governments took hold, um, that really got outlawed to where it was basically boiled down to one tribe called the uh, Hui Chol.
0: Actually, look that one up. Is it we or Hui? It's Hui, but the, the C-H-O-L is the, um, the one you emphasize. So it's Hui Chol.
1: Beautiful, Charles. That's even better than Peyote.
0: At least that's what the YouTube told me. The YouTube Emma saying?
1: <laughs> the one with the spiral? Yeah, is that one accurate? I'm pretty sure they're they're mostly accurate. Okay. Hoichol. Hoichol. Yeah. Okay. So the Hoychol are very well known for being the tribe most associated with peyote ritual use these days. Mm-hmm. But they're also very much opposed to um Western encroachment. Yeah. Sometimes violently so. But I think those two are very much interconnected.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, um, instead of getting rid of all the things that we did and just swapping it out for Christianity like they were being told to do, mm-hmm. they would just say, hey, man, I'll incorporate some of your Christian ideas right. into our peyote ceremonies.
1: Yeah, and not just them, but the the Native American church, which we'll talk about later, they did basically the same thing. That's right. So um, you've got a, a lot of peyote use that kind of went down to um, one tribe. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way... It, It rebounded, no, it it went, it shrank, okay, and then it contracted eventually even larger than before. Oh yeah, to where it is today, yeah, peyote use today is far more widespread than it was a thousand years ago. Wow, isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, well, part of it because of, uh, you know, American tourists.
1: That's definitely part of it. And American tourists were turned on to peyote by a guy who was a UCLA anthropology student back in the 60s named Carlos Castaneda. That guy. Did you ever read any of Castaneda's books?
0: No, but he has been sort of exposed as a, a fraud and a con man mm-hmm. in most academic circles. They will they will call him that.
1: Right, in academic circles. Right. Now, if you <laughs> step over a few rings to the New Age circle, right. the guy is a legend. Sure. And he wrote these books um, that were supposedly ethnographic studies about Don Juan Matis. And this is where Portuguese wine comes in, Chuck.
0: Yeah, did you read this? Any Carlos Castaneda? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, back in the day. Good um, stuff? Yeah, it was very interesting.
0: I only remember it, I mean, I had heard of him, but from the Bongwater song.
1: Uh, what? What is that?
0: Uh, there's. They had a song called Folk Song where she talks about, you know, went somewhere looking for that Carlos Castaneda experience.
1: Oh, is the name of a band. Yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. That's a great name for a band. No, they were great. Um, so Carlos Castaneda, um, he created these ethnographic studies that he turned into books that sold like 10 million copies. And it was him being indoctrinated into the peyote way of life mm-hmm. by a, a peyote magician, mm-hmm. a Yaqui Indian named Don Juan Mattis. Right. And the Portuguese wine comes in because his longtime companion... Is convinced that Don Juan didn't exist, and that Carlos Castaneda made him up and actually named him after Mateus, the Portuguese wine that <laughs> she and he used to drink together all the time. Wow! But she's saying like that doesn't mean he's a fraud. That he he you know combined all of these lessons and everything that he sure. learned from his own peyote trips to kind of create this character that was like almost a spirit character, and everybody said no, he's a fraud. Like this was this was put out there as actual anthropological fieldwork. Right. And he, he basically lied and made all this stuff up yeah. and was exposed later on by some colleagues who really went to great trouble to expose him and undermine him.
0: Because he sold 10 million books.
1: 10 million books. Still selling them, too.
0: It's, it's like that guy. Remember that uh, uh, big controversy, like, jeez, when was it? It was probably 20 years ago or, or, uh, when, or maybe not that long when Oprah exposed, or she didn't Oh, James him. Fry. Yeah, she had him on the show. A, mili- yeah. what, a Million Little Pieces? Yeah, Is that it? something like that. I read that book. I really enjoyed it yeah. and then found out afterward about the fact that a, a lot of it was made up and I didn't care. I was like, well, fine, call it a novel then. Right. I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, but Oprah really... Did not let that one go. Remember, well, she brought him
0: back on yeah, for just like she uh, went on TV, like vouching for the guy, or not vouching, but sure. Essentially, you're sort of vouching if you I guess, recommend his book.
1: I guess, but really, I, I don't know. I think the follow up episode was unnecessary and really put the guy in the stocks, basically.
0: Yeah, I just remember thinking at the time he just should not have called it a memoir; just called right. it a novel. But right, and not to diminish anyone's experience in rehab, which I think was the problem. Is it yeah, kind of very much that what does, offended people? I think so. I mean, he. he basically made up some stuff about a real life tragedy that people go through.
1: Was that 20 years ago?
0: I don't think it was that long ago. 15, maybe? When, when I think I was— uh, 10? I think it was like 15, because it was right before I worked here. It was when I worked for the Chicken Killers.
1: We'll settle, we'll settle <laughs> on 15, then. Uh,
0: so peyote, as far as Westerners go, um, it was really the 1800s. Its effects were first discussed by a doctor in Texas named J.R. Briggs, who uh, apparently just kind of stumbled upon it when he met someone uh, from the Kiowa tribe who sold him some buttons, <laughs> tried it out, wrote about it in 1887,
1: and and, and get this he he wrote that he um, it was a respiratory stimulant and his heart started racing, uh-huh. and within a year the company Park Davis from Detroit uh-huh. had a peyote tincture out that they said will replace the addicting cocaine. For a respiratory (laughs) stimulant.
0: And it was mescaline? Yeah, mescaline tincture. You just drop some mescaline. Well, it used to be the Wild West, didn't it? Yeah, but this was Detroit. Well, it's the Wild Midwest. (laughs) I've got
1: one more story about this, too. (laughs) All right. Park Davis, out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. Alistair Crowley, I don't know how he found out that they had this mescaline tincture, but he shows up at their door Uh in Detroit. You know, Alistair Crowley, the occultist?
0: Sure. He shows up and knocks on the door with his scepter.
1: And he goes, I hear that you have some peyote tincture. Do you mind whipping me up a special batch? And they did. And he said it was like the best peyote tincture he's ever had. Really? Yeah. Out
0: of all the peyote tinctures? I guess he'd had a lot of them. <laughs> I believe it. He
1: wrote a book called, like, The Diary of a Mad Drug Fiend or something like that. So, I mean, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, I bet that's a good read. But the chemist at a pharmaceutical company whipped up a special batch of peyote tincture for him because <laughs> he showed up on the doorstep.
0: I wonder if he goes by the lab and he's like, guys, this is for Aleister Crowley. Just uh, put Don't a do Don't make eye contact. Yeah, a little extra mustard in this one. <laughs> right. So, um, and uh, there was a pharmacologist named uh, Louis Lewin— or Lewis Lewin, and he was the first to publish an analysis of these alkaloids uh, that we were talking about. And this was in 1894. Mm-hmm. So stuff was going on back then in the late 1800s that they didn't quite understand, but they were writing about it.
1: Sure. There's also an article from the Aspen Times in, I think, 1896. that It's just a newspaper article about some like white Pioneer types who found some peyote buttons from running into an indigenous tribe and took them.
0: And In like, Aspen, Colorado? Yeah. And they were where like, Hunter S. Great. Thompson eventually <laughs> would settle. Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's prescient. It. All right. Let's take another break here and we'll talk about the Native American church right after this. Stuff you should know. Josh and shock. Stuff you should know.
1: So, Chuck, there's something really weird about peyote in modern times, and that is that the Native American church um, takes peyote, Mm -hmm. but the Native American church is made up of plenty of tribes Mm -hmm. that never were exposed to peyote traditionally. That was all a byproduct of the forced relocation and reservation settlements that the um, American government forced upon them.
0: Right. So there'll be like a Native American tribe in Canada mm-hmm. that can take this. Canada is nowhere near the natural range of peyote. Right.
1: And it's not like it was traded all the way up in, into Canada back in the day. Right. It literally came out of this intermingling in the Oklahoma territory. And what makes it even more interesting to me is that you can trace it back to basically one man. Yeah. Named Quanah Parker, who was a Comanche chief, who was a bad A dude. Yeah. He was like one of the last holdouts and then managed to go from like um, like basically at war with white settlers in the American government to one of the leadi- leading politicians of the Oklahoma Territory um, wow. who actually bridged the gap between um, the white government and the Indians who'd been relocated. Um, he somehow, rather than just... Being, He went from bitter enemies to, okay, let's figure out how to do this the right way. But he was the one who introduced peyote to the Oklahoma Territory.
0: Yeah, he went to Mexico in the 1880s and, uh, I guess, brought a bunch back with him. Said, this stuff's great.
1: He said, let me just put a little bit of this in my <laughs> hat, and I'm going to ride back with it. Uh,
0: but the Native American church uh, became official in 1918, which I thought was interesting, like right around the same time that mescaline was synthesized. And... No one really knows how many people they have because it's not like um, Ed, Ed says it's like a, not a tightly knit organization. It's more like a set of principles. Sure. And my the first thing that came to my head is like it's probably because they're not they're not after anything. Sure. It's like the the Southern Baptist Convention is very uh, everyone knows exactly how many members there are there mm-hmm. because it's very strict and formal mm-hmm. and codified. Right. Because there's. Uh, I imagine they have an agenda of some sort,
1: sure, I don't think there's anywhere near the same agenda as among the Native American church, but <laughs> they do share the fact that they are a Christian organization, oh yeah, that's as far as I know, they are christian based peyote church, interesting,
0: yeah, well, the other interesting thing is you said because it's sort of a um, a mix of all different kinds of tribes and peoples that they have just sort of settled on um. Like, it's it's not like if they use, like, drums in a ceremony or uh, a rattle in a ceremony. It's mm-hmm. for that specific tribe. They're more like uh, generic uh, Native American items.
1: Right. Is that it about kinda, right? Yeah. It's almost like um, this is, yeah, there's no better way to put it, really.
0: Or they'll have, you know, even if they didn't use teepees in their tribe, they will have the peyote... Uh, ritual ceremony in a teepee. Right, no matter what. Because of its representation.
1: Part of its representation, but also it was just a practical measure too because on the reservation under the very watchful eye of like the white army officers who were in charge of ridding Native Americans of their customs and ceremonies, they couldn't do these peyote rituals out in the open any longer, so they actually took them inside, in secret, into teepees, which is why they're conducted in teepees still today. Gotcha. Originally, it was just to keep uh, from under the the eyes of the the people who were charged with overseeing them and eradicating their culture.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So they were like, let's just keep it in the teepee. Right. What happens in the teepee stays stays in the the teepee. teepee. You got it? So, uh, a modern ceremony uh, in the Native American church with peyote is usually specific, and it's focused on, like, healing, uh, most likely, and it's led by something called a roadman. You sit around that fire, you take your peyote, and you strap in for an all-night experience where you're supposed to, like, really be into it. You're not supposed to lay back and look at the stars or take a nap or anything. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to really focus on, uh, I guess, what you're trying to accomplish.
1: Right, or what the peyote is telling you to pay attention to, sure. Like, you're yeah, it's not like, like check out my hand, I'm waving it in front of my face. Right. Everybody, see that <laughs> funk and grooving, man. How long has this been happening? <laughs> it's like two hours, no man. Right, and there's this uh, science, uh, uh scientific American writer named John Horgan who wrote about being in a, a um, Native American church peyote ritual, and he said, like, man. People were sobbing, people were throwing up, like there was, it was very solemn, he said, and they were just being taught a lot of stuff by the peyote. Very interesting. And the Native American Church is in the United States, the only group that is allowed to um, trade, sell, possess, grow, grow, ingest peyote. And actually, I don't think all of them can grow. I think you have to be a licensed peyotero you do to to grow or harvest peyote, yeah. Um, But you can be like, I'm a member of the Native American church and I can take this. And for a while, um, from I think 1978 till the 90s, you had to be a Native American to be considered a member of the Native American church by the U.S. government and be um, subject to be allowed to eat peyote. But that's not the case anymore. No, There was a a Supreme Court trial, I think.
0: That's right. The uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act's. 78 and 94, basically said uh, it can't be race-specific, so it's unconstitutional. So you could technically join the Native American church. Mm -hmm. You could technically submit um, and petition the government and register with the government and be a peyotero and grow peyote and take it and eat it.
1: Yes, you, Chris Ball. (laughs) That's who Chuck's speaking to right now. Who's Chris Ball? The guy who's listening right now. Uh, Okay, gotcha. (laughs)
0: I hope there is one Chris Ball.
1: I kind of hope there's not now for legal reasons.
0: <laughs> but this was all necessary because uh, here in the United States, of course, um, it was classified as a habit-forming drug in 1929. Which it's not. Which it's not. And uh, let me see. In 1970, uh, the U.S. passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act where they had to put everything in categories, scheduled it as a la- uh, Schedule One, labeled it as a Schedule One. Uh, substance, which is, of course, the worst of the worst, they say. In which it's not. Uh, and that's kind of it. You got anything else?
1: Yeah. One thing I forgot to say is um, it, even though it's not related to LSD or mushrooms, it's frequently compared to it in potency. And I saw that it's 30 times less potent than than psilocybin. That peyote is? Yeah. 30 uh, times less potent? This, this just seemed really weird to me, but I saw it in like an actual study hmm. from San Diego State and Tijuana Tech <laughs> Party School, um, and it's like one thousand to three thousand times less potent than LSD. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, then, what is this twelve hour like? Well, that doesn't ride mean that, that it's not going to like
1: get on top of you, and you can have a really bad trip, and sure. it's going to like. You're going to trip for 12 hours, but supposedly dose-specific.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Like sure. a
1: gram of—
0: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Maybe mescaline maybe compared that's to a why gram of LSD buttons.
1: is just completely Yeah. bonkers, the okay. difference between the two.
0: Well, because LSD, they've synthesized down to, you know, it's a little tiny piece of paper. Sure. It's not eight buttons. That's right. <laughs>
1: uh, I think that's it, then. That's peyote. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, if you want to know more about peyote, go read some Carlos Castaneda books. And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh,
0: This is on Eyewitness Testimony. Hey, guys. uh, I thought I'd chip in a little bit about my own personal experience. So I've been living and working in Japan for the last 15 years. I've noticed I'm perfectly capable of identifying Japanese. As a matter of fact, I can sometimes recognize and pick out students... That I taught many years ago on the train or the mall with relative ease. I live and work in the uh, Kansai area, which is a little smaller than New York City in terms of population. So I see a lot of people. Uh, Meanwhile, back in the States, uh, during the holidays one time, I was shopping with my family, spotted my mom from across the store, and uh, walked over to her. When I got closer, it wasn't my mom. What? It was another woman that looked about the same uh, age and height. And he wrote back after, I told him I was going to read it, and said, you know, just wanted to point out I'm just a white dude. Just a white dude. <laughs> right. Uh, and he said, so I think it's not that we are somehow magically better at identifying our own race, but are just better at identifying the kind of people that we are usually surrounded by. Uh, that's a good Which point. is usually our own race. Good point. That, very good point.
1: What's this guy's name? Chris Ball?
0: No. He said, I thought you might find that interesting. Anyway, if you're ever in Japan again, Josh, let me know. Sure. Chris? And uh, just one small question for you. Did you ever take the, jangui- uh, the, janguage, the Japanese language proficiency test, which I think they call the Janglage test for short? <laughs> Did I ever take it? No. Yes.
1: Had I, I would have failed spectacularly. It's one of the great shames of my life that I, after all these years and being married to a woman of Japanese ancestry, I, I speak very little Japanese.
0: All right. Well, he says, I've just gotten done writing a book for the first level. And I'd love to send it to you.
1: Oh, yeah, please. Chris. And that
0: is uh, from Clayton McKnight. Clayton. And he said, P.S., one of the textbooks I use in class has a hippie character in it named Rob. No.
1: That's what he said. Wow. Yeah, I would love to have that book because I would like to learn Japanese. Yeah, Clayton. Thanks, Clayton. I've been to Kansai, too, before. They have a beautiful airport there that was designed by Renzo Piano. Nice. It's worth even just looking up pictures of. It's that nice.
0: Did you ever stay in that TWA hotel in New York? No. No. Have you? No, but I... I Saw it in, an, in a magazine article, and I thought it looked pretty cool. Yeah, it does look cool. I haven't been to New York for a while. Yeah, the problem is staying out of the airport.
1: Yeah, JFK. I mean, I guess if you're just, like, staying there overnight for a connecting flight, that'd work. Yeah, why not? Let's do it. All right. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Clayton did and um, offer us a language book or anything, or just to say hi, you can go on to know.com and check out our social links there. And you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.